Well, what's up, Purpose Church? I am so glad you're with us for week three of our series, Dear Church, as we're going to be studying all summer the book of Revelation. But let me begin with a question. Who's your hero? Every one of us has a hero. We probably have multiple heroes. I found this definition of a hero online, and it goes like this. A hero is a person who is admired or idolized for courage, outstanding achievements, or noble qualities. A hero is somebody that you and I want to emulate. It's somebody that we aspire to be. And I thought it'd be fun to show you some of my mostly childhood heroes. And so I'm going to pop up some pictures on the screen in a minute. And maybe from home, you can just shout out or wherever you're listening to this from or watching this from, you can shout out with whoever you're with if you recognize these people. These were some of my heroes early on. One of my first heroes that I can remember was this guy. You guys know who that is? That's Zorro. Yes, Zorro was my guy. I thought this guy was incredible. He'd ride around with a horse and he had this cool sword and, and this mask that he would wear across his eyes. In fact, for multiple Halloweens, I was Zorro. I became so obsessed with Zorro that when we would travel as a family or my parents would need to tell me how long something was going to take, they would literally count it in Zorro episodes. So an, a Zorro episode on TV was a about 30 minutes. So if we were traveling on vacation, they would say, Eric, it's going to take us four Zorro episodes. Or hey, you have two more Zorro episodes before this thing is going to happen. Zorro was one of my first heroes. The, the, the second hero that came to mind for me was this guy. And yes, you know it. He's the man, the myth, the legend, Michael Jordan. I remember watching him play basketball. I remember being so excited about what he could do on the court. I quickly realized I don't have any of the qualities he has that made him an NBA star, but I was going to try my best. And so I would sit in my driveway. I'd bounce the basketball and I, I'd shoot hoops and I would pretend that I was Michael Jordan. I was emulating and I was aspiring to be like him. And then a, bit, a little bit later, towards the end of elementary school, my heroes became, and this one is, a, I'm almost nervous to admit this, but yes, it was the band NSYNC. I mean, I just, JT, Justin Timberlake, uh, th th this cast right here. I remember, you know, I, I would sit in my room and go, bye, 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 right? Like I was all about NSYNC, so much so that one Christmas I asked my parents to get me uh, a keyboard, a synthesizer, and, and I, I had this double tape deck, a boombox, and I would literally record songs in my room for hours laying over different tracks and vocals and harmonizing and trying to get my, uh, you know, RB&B on or whatever, because I was just all about NSYNC. I, I had another super, another hero in my life. It was a guy named, do you know who this is? This is David Copperfield. He was an incredible magician. And I, I remember getting a cape at one time in my life like I thought magicians should have. I had a magic box full of different tricks. I was learning them and I would sell tickets to my family to come and see the magic show that I was preparing. And then towards the end of junior high, my hero was a guy named Jamie 
Thomas. Jamie Thomas, he actually later became a Christian. He was known for doing big jumps. This was called the Leap of Faith. And this was featured in so many magazines. This is actually a school in San Diego where he, all, he, he did this trick, this ollie over this stair set onto the ground that had seriously hurt so many people before him. And, and this guy, I, I wanted to skate like him. I dress like him. I listened to the music he listened to. I did the kinds of tricks that he did because he was one of my heroes. Who are your heroes right now? It's clear that in the book of Revelation, amidst all the craziness of what is going on, that if there was one singular message, it's this. Jesus is the hero of Revelation, and Jesus wins in the end. But as we're going to see today in our study of Revelation chapter 6 and 7, there's some lowercase heroes in the kingdom of God that you and I can aspire to and can emulate. You know, a few weeks ago, I was beginning to prepare for this sermon, and I was on vacation for a few days, and I was feeling rested, and so I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to Starbucks, I'm going to set aside two hours, and, and just start cranking on this sermon. Well, I sit there, and I begin, I open up Book of Revelation, start reading it, chapter six and seven, I start looking at some commentaries, and all of a sudden, I look up at my watch, and two hours had flown by, and I had nothing to show for it. I mean, I, I literally was going, God, what is this about? Am I the best person to be talking about this? And the answer is definitely no. But through the process, God has taught me so much. And I'm so excited for our time together. A, a little recap. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John, who walked with Jesus. It was written in probably the years 90 to 95 AD, and, and it was written to a series of churches. And in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, which Pastor Glenn talked about last week, we discovered these things called the seals and the scroll. And it's almost like there's this dramatic thing going on in heaven, wondering who has the power to break the seals and to open the scroll. And then there's this triumphant, climactic moment where it's communicated only Jesus has the power to break the seals and to open the scroll. It's almost like Jesus is like a, 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 a divine Hulk, right? That, that Hulk kind of takes on these different, uh, whether he's, he's kind of normal Hulk or he's like green Hulk. Well, Jesus is featured as, as this lamb and as the lion, the only one capable of breaking the seals and opening the scroll, the true hero of heaven. And what I want to do with our time together in Revelation chapter 6 and 7 is this. I want to talk about what's debated. Because make no mistake about it, there are lots of interpretations of what is going on in these passages. And so we're going to have some fun talking about what's debated. And then I want to give you something solid to hold on to. I want to give you a firm foundation of what is certain. What you and I can be certain of from these two chapters in Revelation. Well, Pastor Glenn, at the beginning of our series, talked about the four most popular views of interpreting the book of Revelation. And because I'm going to use those terms a lot in my message, I wanted to kind of recap those for us. So the first view is called the historicist approach. And this basically survey, view, views Revelation as a survey of the whole of church history from the very beginning all the way to the end of 
the world. The, the second view is called the preterist approach or the preterist view. And, and, and they basically argue that the fulfillment of everything talked about in Revelation up until the very end is actually in the past, that, that it happened shortly after the apostle John wrote about it, maybe even before he wrote about it. The third approach would be the futurist approach. And this approach says that everything after chapter 3 awaits fulfillment in the future and those days are coming. And the fourth view is called the symbolic approach, which basically says that Revelation gives you and I principles for living the Christian life, or it's things that get repeated over and over throughout church history. And as Pastor Glenn joked about, you know, we're both fans of all of them. And in fact, you're going to see me reference and mention all of them, because I think all of them at different times have something to offer our understanding of Revelation. But I kind of have a pet peeve that I got to say. You know, sometimes I'll hear people say, you know, something will happen on the world stage. Something will, they'll read something in the news. They'll see an article or something happen in a certain country and they'll go, look, look, that's evidence. We're in the last days. We're in the last days. And, and it always bothers me because they're right in that we're in the last days, but it's not just starting now. In fact, it's clear in the book of Hebrews that the last days started a long time ago. In Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says this, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. In these last days. So are we in the last days? Yes. We're in the last days until Jesus returns. We were in the last days when he ascended. We are in the last days until he returns again. And maybe some of you are hoping for like encouragement for why should I keep reading the book of Revelation? It's so difficult to understand. I think Pastor Glenn said something really, really profound that has helped me and I hope it continues to help you throughout this series. He said in his very first message about Revelation, Revelation is the only book, it's the only book of the Bible that promises if you read it, you will be blessed. That's coming from Revelation chapter 1 verse 3. And so I want to encourage you, keep reading Revelation. Keep talking about Revelation in your life group. Keep talking about Revelation with your family and friends. Keep diving in and studying Revelation because we will be blessed, it promises us, if we read it. Well, let's begin with what's debated. What's debated? And we're going to first begin by talking about the seals in Revelation chapter 6. Now let me give you a little context. Revelation chapter 6 basically identifies the four Ds. And the four Ds are disasters, death, disease, and destruction. It communicates that the world is broken and the world is unraveling. And in chapter 6, we'll see six of the seven seals. The seventh seal doesn't show up until Revelation chapter 8. And what I want to do now is I want to walk through quickly those six seals and offer you a few different interpretations of what they mean. And so I want you to, to, to buckle up theologically. We're about to do a deep dive. And maybe there's going to be moments where you're going, what is he talking about? Why are we going this deep? I promise you, we're going to get to a good place and we're going to find some nuggets of goodness together. Let's begin with the first seal. Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. 
I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on Conquest. Now, the horseman on a white horse who is bringing conquest is most likely not Jesus, who is depicted in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, as a horseman on a white horse. Now, a historicist, they would interpret the first seal as the period of Roman imperialism, which began with the death of Domitian in 96 AD, all the way to the time of peace made by Commodus in 100 AD. During that time of Roman history, there were five good emperors that advanced Rome through military conquests, just like those verses describe. They think that this is what was being described here because the bow in verse 2 may refer to the emperor Nerva, who was from Cretan descent, because they were known as a race of bowmen. Let's go to the second seal, verses 3 and 4. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. Now the historicists, they see this second seal as the period between 100 AD and 284 AD, which was described as a period of civil war and bloodshed in Rome. The preterists, on the other hand, they would see this second seal passage as referring to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, which also brought about the Jewish civil wars. But maybe you're a futurist. Futurists would see the second seal as coming about during the great tribulation, a future war. The third seal gets described in verses 5 and 6. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, Historicists, they see this heavy taxation as having come to fruition during the third century by the Roman emperors when when Jews suffered horrible food shortages during the Roman siege. Let's go to the fourth seal. The fourth seal in verses seven and eight says, when the Lord opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures say, come. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now this one's really, really interesting because both historicists and preterists, they point to different time periods in history when death by sword, famine, and disease was more prevalent. For the historicists, it was in 248 to 268 AD when in Rome 5,000 people died daily at the hands of the barbarians. In fact, Eusebius, who is the third century Greek historian, he described this time period this way. 
death waged a desolating war with famine and pestilence or disease. Men wasted away to mere skeletons. However, the the preterists, they point to 70 AD, where in besieged Jerusalem, the sword, famine, and disease were severely decimating the population. Meanwhile, the futurists, well, they hold to the claim that the fourth seal refers to the beginning of the great tribulation. Let's look at the fifth seal together. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Verse 11. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been. Now, here's where we discover some of the lowercase heroes of Revelation. They turn out to be the faithful Christians who trust Jesus and follow him even when it leads to their death. Historicists, they think of the fifth seal as the, the era called the end or the era of the martyrs, which happened between 270 and 304 AD under Roman Emperor Diocletian, who, who this guy was a gifted organizer and an administrator. And he initiated the first ever empire-wide persecution of Christians with the explicit goal of making Christianity extinct. Interestingly enough, Diocletian, his wife and his daughter were Christians. However, this didn't stop him from his campaign. And this this era didn't end until Constantine converted to Christianity in 312 AD. During the era of the martyrs, or as some call it, the great persecution, it became illegal to be Christian. Christians lost their jobs. They had their property taken. Some were enslaved and many were burned alive and tortured for believing in the resurrection of Jesus. Churches were burned. Copies of the Bible were burned. You know, Philip Schaff, who was a 19th century Protestant theologian and church historian, he, he described the era of the martyrs this way. All the pains which iron and steel, fire and sword, rack and cross, wild beasts and beastly men could inflict were employed against the church. Executioners grew tired with all the work they had to do. This is why we say that the first example of the lowercase heroes of the kingdom of God as we find in Revelation are this group of people who are willing to literally give up everything, including their lives, to follow Jesus. Yet somebody who interprets Revelation as a preterist, they would see the fifth seal as the persecution of first century Christians who who experienced persecution at the hands of the Jewish leaders. And, And a futurist, they would interpret the fifth seal as the current persecution Christians are feeling and the future persecution that Christians will face. Let's look at our last and our sixth seal for today. 
I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Historicists, they see the sixth seal as the great fall of paganism to Christianity under Constantine's reign and conversion to faith in 312 AD. You see, they would see when John mentions the sun and the moon and the stars, they would say they they represent historical earthly dignitaries and political authorities who fell from power during that time. Interestingly enough, the the famous 18th century British Bible scholar, Matthew Henry, who who usually would interpret Revelation through the lens of the historicists, that he actually saw the sixth seal as the way the preterists would, claiming that the earthquake described in Revelation 6 verse 12, it represents the shaking of the Jewish religion with the coming of Christ instead of some future event yet to be Fulfilled. In fact, most preterists, they would interpret Revelation 6, 15, and 16 as the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy in Luke 23, where Jesus described people hiding in the caves during such extreme suffering that happened at the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And some futurists, well, they see the earthquakes and the darkened moon and the falling stars in Revelation 6, 12, and 13 as the devastating effects of nuclear warfare and future wars. You see, I, I think what New Testament scholar Craig S. Keener said when he summarized all six of these seals is the very best. You see, he, he said it this way. By revealing his anger against the world's sin, God serves notice on oppressors and mercifully prevents us from becoming too comfortable with a world system destined to pass away. God is sovereign in history, even over our sufferings. They are the seals, the marks of divine witness to the veracity of his promises. You see, taking all of this into consideration, there is a lot to debate. There is a lot to have conversation over. But what can you and I be certain of? Well, here's what you and I can be certain of. Tough truths about the future, whether those are 70 AD or uh, 300 AD or 2022, tough truths about the future will help you and I live with intention Today, because there is a definite future described in the next verse. Revelation chapter 6, verse 17 says this For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? 
Here, John is describing a very specific day when God will judge the world. And it is clear throughout scripture that you and I will be accountable to one person and one person only. That we will be accountable to Jesus Christ. This means we won't be accountable to our family. We we won't be accountable to our traditions. We won't be accountable to our upbringing. We won't be accountable to our culture. That you and I will be accountable to Jesus and Jesus alone for what we did with his message and how we lived our lives. And so you and I can be certain of at least four things. And the first one is this, that the Old Testament predicted this great day or day of the Lord. It's actually in the Old Testament and the New Testament, not in, not just in Revelation. In Isaiah chapter 2 verses 10 and 12, back in the Old Testament, it says, go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted Exalted in that day, the Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. Number two is this. Every person, every single one of us, every person on planet earth will stand one day before Jesus Christ and be judged. Look at what Paul said in Romans chapter 14. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. So, so we can't be riding on the backs of those around us. We can't assume that our parents' faith or our grandparents' faith is enough. No, every one of us will stand before Christ. And then here's some good news. Number three, Jesus will help you and I stay faithful until that day of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8, Paul says, He, talking about Jesus, will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know when that day will be, but what we can be certain of right now is that you and I can pray and say, Jesus, help me to remain firm to the end. Help me to continue to follow you even when it's difficult. Give me a hope beyond what I see in the world. It reminds me of Dave Milbrandt. He's, uh, he's one of our uh, trustees here at Purpose Church. Good friend of mine, him and his wife, Renee. They actually just celebrated their 25-year wedding anniversary, incredible people. And uh, after our first message in this series, Dave came up to me and he said, you know, we really need to consider changing the name of this series to that well-known song by R.E.M. that went a little bit like this. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That's really the book of Revelation, right? It's the reality that the world is unraveling, but we can have a kind of contentment as followers of Jesus because he will hold us firm to the end as we cling to him. And the fourth thing we can be certain of is that Jesus connected his second coming with the gospel going out to the entire world. Look at this. In Jesus' own words, Matthew chapter 24, 
And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus doesn't promise that everyone will say yes to him, but that all the nations will hear the good news of Jesus. You see, I was reading a commentary this week by Craig S. Keener, who we quoted a little bit earlier, and and it just got me pumped up and fired up. I wanted to share it with you. He said, although the world persecutes Christ's witnesses as the fifth seal testifies, God will vindicate them as the sixth seal confirms. Therefore, we should witness boldly. Yet in the United States, it is often my experience that the Christians, that Christians are complacent satisfied with their own conversion and personal growth. As I witness to members of various cults like Mormons, I often find a greater commitment to spreading their message, though it is a false gospel, than I find among most evangelical churchgoers. You know, there's a, there's a great story within uh, Christendom, within the Christian history, and, and Andy Stanley in one of his books tells it. It's the story of William Tyndale. As Greek and Hebrew manuscripts found their way into the hands of church reformers in the 1500s, it was decided that they should be translated into a language that p- common people could read. In 1522, William Tyndale determined to translate the Bible into English. When a fellow clergyman challenged Tyndale, suggesting that people might be better without the law of God than without the law of the Pope, he replied, I love this comment, this is incredible. Tyndale replied, if God spares my life, Before many years pass, I will make it possible for a boy behind the plow to know more scripture than you do. Mic drop. Bow. That's incredible. And then he continues, or it continues. In 1526, Tyndale began smuggling printed copies of the English Bible from Germany into his homeland of England. Tyndale was eventually captured, tried as a heretic, and executed by hanging and burning. You see, the reality is we don't know how all of our lives are going to end. And we may experience persecution in this life. But what we can be confident of is that we have examples in heaven, heroes of heaven, who chose to stick it out, who chose to follow Jesus no matter what it cost them. Well, let's look at what's debated in chapter 7. In chapter 7 of Revelation, what's debated is the 144,000. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 4, it says, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Now, lots of people give lots of attention, have big questions. Who are the 144,000? What are they talking about? And and what's interesting is some people say that the 144,000 are the spiritual Israel, the church. Some say they're the Judean Christians who fled Rome and survived the fall of the temple in 70 AD. Some believe that the 144,000 are the Jews who will be converted in the future near the end of time. And and some say it's a symbolic representation of the church throughout the ages. But in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9, there's a much more interesting number. In in verse 9 it says this, After this I looked and there before me was a great 
multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. You see, the important question is not who are the 144,000? Oh, but the important question is this. Will I be among the great multitude in heaven worshiping Jesus? Don't spend so much energy and time trying to figure out exactly who those 144,000 are. Spend your time asking the question, will I be among the multitude worshiping Jesus? Will my family and friends and my neighbors and my coworkers be among the multitude worshiping Jesus? And, and here's where we discover what's certain in Revelation chapter 7. It's this. A biblical picture of heaven will give you perspective and hope today. Let, let's drill into that last verse, verse 9, and then go into verse 10. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and what were they doing? They cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Here's another picture of the lowercase heroes of Revelation. It's, it's the multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual, unparalleled group of people that experience such incredible unity. Why? Why'd they experience unity? Because their love and devotion to Jesus demanded it. There's diversity as we can see in heaven. We don't lose our diversity in heaven. There will be diversity in heaven. But the heroes of Revelation turn out to be the multi-ethnic, multicultural, and multilingual global body of Christ who experiences unparalleled unity because their love and devotion to Jesus demands it. See, friends, when, when your theology doesn't see heaven as an ethnically, culturally, and linguistically unified reality, you won't see earth as a place worth pursuing that kind of unity. You see, Paul understood that the gospel, the cross, death, resurrection of Jesus actually brings about unity amongst people that are so different than each other. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's in this rant about this, and he says, for he himself, talking about Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one. There he's talking about Jews and Gentiles who had hundreds of years of prejudice and hatred between them. But Jesus actually brings and makes us one, who has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Can I get an amen out there? You see, Paul is clear. The gospel, the gospel communicates that every single one of us 
us are equally in need of grace. It doesn't matter what ethnicity we are. It doesn't matter what culture we come from. It doesn't matter what things we have. It doesn't matter what religious system we grew up in. It doesn't matter who our parents are or who our children are. Every single person, person on planet Earth, meaning you and I, are equally in need of God's grace that only comes to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And because salvation comes only from Jesus, unity is only possible through Jesus. And so today, Revelation beckons you and I, calls you and I to fix our eyes on the one and only hero of heaven so that we can become lowercase heroes in the kingdom of God and point the way to Jesus. You see, this idea of a, a biblical picture of heaven will give you perspective and hope today. It, it begs the question that, that, that maybe you and I should reconsider following Jesus, or maybe you've been looking for a good reason to consider following Jesus. Here, here's a good reason, and it begins with a question. Where does your hope come from? Like, like at the core of who you are, where does your hope come from? Because if it's not in something eternal, it will fail you and leave you vulnerable and fragile, right? Let me just give you a few examples. If your hope is in your job right now, well, you know how that ends, right? You either get fired or you retire, right? Like you get fired or you retire. At the very end, that's how the whole job thing ends. If your hope is in your job, it's going to eventually fail you. Or maybe your hope is in a person. Maybe your hope is in a relationship. Well, you'll eventually be gone or they will eventually be gone. M maybe your hope is, is, is in your body, in how you look. Well, our bodies change. Maybe it's in a status that you uphold that will eventually fall by the wayside. You need to ask yourself the question, where does my hope come from? And when you have a biblical picture of heaven that we will be around the throne, the diverse body of Christ, unified, worshiping Jesus, that has the potential to help you get through anything you're going through. In, in fact, for Christians, this picture of heaven is an incredibly powerful resource to help you get through the most difficult and painful of times. It's why Tim Keller says this, only if your meaning in life is rooted in something outside this world will you actually be equipped for life inside this world. What does this actually look like? Let me give you kind of an extreme picture. A, a, a picture of, of a moment where it made all the sense in the world for self-preservation to abandon their faith. But I want to tell you about 23 missionaries who because they had a biblical picture of heaven, they were able to endure one of the most difficult things imaginable. In Francis Chan's book, Forgotten God, he, he tells this story, and it was, it was brought to my attention by uh, one of my friends, one of our leaders in our high school ministry, a guy named Kellen Grant, and he shared this quote with me, and I thought it was so powerful, I wanted to share it with you. Francis Chan writes this, I recently had dinner in Seoul, Korea with an amazing man. He was one of the 23 missionaries who were held hostage by the Taliban in Afghanistan in July of 2007. 
For those of you who don't recall the story, the Taliban executed two of the missionaries before a deal was reached with the government of South Korea and the missionaries were released. This man told me about the horrors of being locked up in a cell, knowing that martyrdom was a strong possibility. He also shared about the amazing time they had on that last day that they were all imprisoned together because later their captors actually divided them into groups of three and took them to remote areas. Each of the 23 missionaries on that very last night out loud surrendered their physical lives to God. They told him that they were willing to die for his glory. There was even an argument over who would get to die first. One of these missionaries had a small Bible that the missionaries secretly ripped into 23 pieces so each one of them could glance at scripture when no one was watching. You see, the word of God and the spirit of God got them through the 40 days of imprisonment. And one of the most fascinating things, this is what Francis Chan says, one of the most fascinating things that this man told me was about what has happened since. Now that they had been back in Seoul, Korea for a while, several team members have asked him, don't you wish we were still there? He tells me that several of them experienced a deep kind of intimacy with God in the prison cell that they haven't been able to recapture in their comfort. This is the precious gift of intimacy the Holy Spirit offers us. It is a security that is priceless and worth any loss of safety or comfort, even imprisonment by the Taliban. See, just having that picture of heaven that one day we will worship around the throne of Jesus, we will worship him unified, can get you and I through far more than we could get through on our own. It's why Dr. Esau McCauley, he he gives us this encouragement. Sometimes you have to worship in the presence of your doubts and disappoint them to remind them who reigns. Maybe right now, You are carrying a lot on your shoulders. You've got some major doubts and disappointments. You're feeling persecuted. You're not sure what the future holds for you. May this biblical picture of heaven, the multitude worshiping Jesus, be the thing that helps you get through what you're going through. And when we gather together as the body of Christ, and we worship corporately together, something incredible happens. I want you to watch this video with Brooke Ligertwood, who's a a worship leader, as she describes a pretty incredible phenomenon that happens when people gather together, whether in their house, uh, in their life group, in a building, when people gather to worship Jesus together, something incredible happens. Let's watch this together. Singing together in that way, in one accord, can literally build unity. Biologically, God designed it that way. When we sing with other voices, endorphins are actually released, as is oxytocin, which have been proven not only to help with anxiety and stress, but with trust and bonding. Some studies have even found that during group singing, people's heart rates start to sync up. Imagine that, our hearts coming into alignment. It reminds me of this A.W. Tozer quote that I love. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? 
They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshippers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship.